I'm looking at you too, right? That's I'm correct. Talking to you. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. <clears throat> All right. This is a oral history interview with Walt Riker for the Robert J. Dole Institute of Politics. Mm-hmm. We're in the worldwide home office of the McDonald's Corporation in Oak Brook, uh, Illinois, where Walt holds the position of Vice President of Corporate Media Relations. Today is Wednesday, March 12, 2008, and I'm Brian Williams. Walt, let's start with a little bit of your background, how you got into journalism, and where you studied, and so forth. Sure. Uh, I grew up in New York City in the Bronx, uh, and ended up at the University of Kansas, which a lot of people ask me, how, could, how can that happen? <laughs> but uh, uh, my, my uh, father was a distinguished professor at Cornell University Medical School. His best friend throughout life was Clark Wesco, who became chancellor at the University of Kansas. And uh, he was really my uh, a surrogate uncle for me. So that's how I got connected to Kansas, which is important to this story because you know, how did, a, how did a kid from the Bronx get to Kansas and then from Kansas get with, uh, uh, you know, a giant like Bob Dole? So that's kind of how it happened. I went to KU. I majored in English when I was at KU. It was the greatest decision I ever made in my life. It opened me up to all the great things about Kansas and the friendly people and a wonderful state, phenomenal university, really opened my horizons. Um, after uh, I graduated in uh, 1970 and I got a degree in English, I went into music. And I was a professional musician for about six or seven years. I had my own bands. We had original bands. I lived in Lawrence and Topeka, toured all over the U.S., a lot of hard work. I really enjoyed it. <laughs> I didn't make any money, but really enjoyed it. It was a great experience. When I kind of realized that that was kind of a tough racket to be in, I decided I wanted to go back to school. I always wanted to get into journalism. I graduated from, from, with an English degree, but I was always very much interested in television. I wanted to get into broadcast and TV news. Went back to the William Allen White School of Journalism at KU, another great decision. And this time I was uh, actually a mature individual, and so I really buckled down and <laughs> got, got pretty good grades and really, really uh, got into it. And... Uh, uh, so I graduated from the KU School of Journalism, and I was hired uh, by Channel 13, WIBW in Topeka, and they hired me actually while I was still in school. And that was a great break for me because uh, it was exciting because I could get into the real world of broadcasting and uh, really start learning a lot, not only about radio and TV, but also about Kansas. And so as I kind of migrated up, uh, from a kind of a hotshot, aggressive radio reporter, I got the coveted position in television to be the state house correspondent, which was the the top job at the station. And I was fortunate enough to kind of leapfrog over a lot of senior people who really wanted the job. And once I got the job, I kind of realized why. But uh, WIBW at the time, the TV station was was the powerhouse. It was the dominant. Uh, TV face, if you will, in almost the, 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 the entire eastern half of Kansas. And it was, you know, a, a, a blowtorch. And so I think at 6 o'clock news had a market share of like 60-something. It was just, you know, beyond belief. And it was a very famous station for developing people who went on to network news, like Bill Curtis, just for one, many sports personalities and such. So it was an, it was an honor to be there. But once I got in at the state capitol, my job was politics, so I was covering politics every single day. So I covered the legislature, covered the governor. And as I got more experience, my profile 
you know, was rising at the station, if you will. I was on it. You know, I was on TV every single night. I probably usually had a live report from the state house. I interviewed all the politicians, and uh, I knew everybody on both sides of the aisle, to tell you the truth. And uh, I remember Bob Dole coming in. Uh, I'll never forget this one day. Uh, I was covering um, an event in the governor's office, and, and Bob Dole was kind of making, <laughs> later I would be on these, these kind of uh, incredible sweeps through the state, just nonstop traveling and appearances and, you know, popping in to see the governor and popping in to see a, maybe a state legislator and then doing interviews and keep, you know, moving all the time and meeting with constituent groups, making speeches, uh, fundraising. So I remember Dole coming in, and I was a reporter, and uh, the drama of, of someone like Bob Dole coming in, who was, you know, the giant, giant politician in the state, and coming in with his little entourage, and which I would be part of later, but you know, he came in, and we were all, frankly, in awe when, when Dole came in because of his profile and what he meant to the state. And it was interesting because my impression was how he was kind of dwarfing the governor and everybody else there, and we were you know, firing questions at him kind of as he came in. I remember, I think it was something to do with the SALT Treaty and all that, and maybe the Jimmy Carter stuff. But uh, So that, that was really great. And then uh, as I uh, covered politics, I got to know people in all the different offices. So Senator Dole had an office in Topeka, and I would hang out there just you know, getting to know the people in the, in the Kansas staff. They were good people, and I learned a lot about politics, so it was helpful to me. And I do the same on the Democrat side. I had a lot of Democrat friends that go into the, you know, the Speaker's office. And, and so, uh, but what happened uh, in the Dole office is I got to know Kim Wells, who was in that office, and he's a legendary Dole guy, and, uh, and, a, and a great guy and a, and a tremendous sense of humor. But we really hit it off, so we would hang out, spend time together in the, the Topeka office, and uh, had a lot of laughs, learned a lot. But then uh, I went back to my TV job, doing my thing, and one day I got a call from Kim Wells, and he asked me if I would be interested in uh, possibly being Bob Dole's secreta press secretary. This came out of the blue. I never expected it anything like that. And uh, I was uh, kind of blown away. I was very flattered. And I really thought, you know, long and hard about it. It was kind of a daunting prospect, to tell you the truth. But I agreed to throw my hat in the ring, and that's really how it all started with Senator Dole. Now, let me just add real quick here. Uh, during his 1980 campaign for Senate, he was running against a guy named John Simpson. He was the Democrat. And it was a total mismatch. I mean, it was like a heavyweight going up against a, you know, a, a flyweight. And that's no disrespect to John Simpson. He was a really good guy. But he was just up against a, you know, a titan. It was just out of his league. And, uh, and so Dole would make his uh, campaign swing through the state as he was running for sen Senate in 1980. And so uh, while he did that, I interviewed him. So I had um, a sit-down interview with Senator Dole. I would interview him at different times during the campaign. I still have the videotape, actually, of, of the interviews. So I can look at myself now, uh, all these years later, but I see myself sitting there with Senator Dole. I'm a TV guy, and I'm interviewing him, and uh, he's making me laugh because he's 
funny, but it also it was a, it was a good piece. I also got him, also got Senator Dole live right before the first uh, Reagan Carter debate. They did a live interview with Senator Dole from the Washburn campus where he went to school, and uh, I was asking if he had any uh, advice for the candidates during the debate. So, looking back, it's uh, pretty ironic because I covered politics. That was my first uh, open door to Senator Dole. And then uh, I interviewed him you know, extensively. I covered him in Washington. I would go back and do reports from the White House when Jimmy Carter was president, also when Ronald Reagan was elected. So um, I'd see him there as well. And then I uh, got to know him as a reporter, and I had a tremendous amount of respect for him uh, instantly. You know, you could tell he had the gravitas, the amazing gr grasp of, of issues, and it was a great interview. I mean, he just, he always gave you something. Um, did you have a particular uh, political orientation growing up in New York uh, City? Were you, was your family strongly Republican, strongly Democrat? That's a good question. I'm actually putting that in my book, so I don't want to give away all my good stuff, but no, I'm kidding. But uh, no, I, I grew up uh, in a uh, political family in the sense that my mother and father followed politics like sports, and so at an early age, I was interested in politics. And it was uh, uh, pretty much a classic post-FDR family. They're Democrats. New York was a Democrat city. The mayor was always Democrat. Um, and so, uh, yes, I grew up in a Democrat household. My father was a big Ad Adlai Stevenson fan. He was a prof you know, professorial, he was an intellectual. And so my father was definitely tuned into that. Uh, and we watched all the early political TV shows religiously. Um, I think for me, they happened to run on Sundays, like the Meet the Press type shows. The only reason I was watching is because they were right before the NFL football game, which was the New York Giants. And uh, that was almost like a pregame show <laughs> that I had to watch. So I saw Mike Mansfield and, and uh, Hubert Humphrey a lot. So I learned a lot of politics uh, back then. So did you have to go through a period of conversion to uh, join Dole's staff? Or, or yeah, you know, I mean, again, I'm writing about that in my book, uh, that I really uh, uh, was coming out of a, a democratic environment, if you will. Uh, but I, uh, I liked Nixon uh, when he was vice president and running in 1960. I was really, for him as a kid, I just, I, I liked Nixon. I liked what he represented. And I supported him. I wore Nixon buttons. I went to a Nixon rally. And, uh, but then when Kennedy was elected, and I, you know, having lived through it, I mean, he was a dynamic, uh, you know, inspirational, charming personality who just swept everybody off their feet, including me. And so we were all you know, devastated when he was assassinated and all the rest. But I think once Johnson got in, the whole thing started tilting the other way because he certainly had, had no charisma. And uh, I, I never really warmed up to him. Um, but uh, I would say this. It's kind of interesting. Uh, I was on the KU campus during the whole Vietnam era, which actually started with JFK. It didn't start with Nixon. You know, the, the warped history tries to say. But, uh, but so the whole progression from JFK to LBJ and then to, to Nixon. And so we was, I was caught up in that. But more almost like an observer. I, I didn't uh, passionately get into, you know, demonstrating, and I never really got into any of that. But uh, I was more interested kind of in the music culture, frankly, 
but I was a, kind of almost like a UN observer at all these demonstrations that happened on the KU campus and all of the all of the stu all of the rest of that and the 1968 Democratic Convention riots here in Chicago. Uh, but I, I remember seeing Bob Dole on television when I was living in Topeka during my uh, musician years, and uh, it was uh, right after Watergate and all all of the rest and the impeachment and attempt and all of that. And I, uh, I remember watching Dole on TV and I remember, you know, I was in, an, in a little apartment. I was a drummer in a band and I was getting ready to go back to school, but uh, the house was hot. I didn't have air conditioning. I'll never forget this. I think I was working out in the house and I had a, a little TV, one of these little portable Sonys on top of a bar stool. Okay, that's about all I had back then. I remember seeing Dole on one of the political shows because I always watched him. And I remember listening to him, and I think it was right after the Roy campaign. Uh, and he was one of the few survivors of the you know, Watergate uh, backlash. He looked like he'd come out of a war. I mean, I remember he had the dark circles under his eyes, and he just looked exhausted. And you, know, you could almost tell through his voice that he, he was, he'd survived. <laughs> it wasn't, didn't win, he had survived. But I remember listening to him, and I was just listening to him with an open mind. And the more I heard him talk, the more it sounded good to me. It made sense. He was connecting with me. And so I really felt myself, you know, changing. I felt like, you know, this was kind of a direction that, that I felt comfortable with. And then, uh, you know, the final story was the Carter debacle, you know, and his, his failed presidency and, you know, the, the collapse of America, basically in my view. And so that really, that really flipped me. Uh, for the historical record here, and I don't want to in, impose on your book anymore, but uh, did you have one band or were you in many bands? I was in many bands. Uh -huh. I had an all original band I'm very proud of. It was called Thump Theater. It was together two years. We did all original music. Uh, we actually, we toured with a group that would be in the same circuit with a group that then became Kansas, which was, you know, very famous group, great, good guys. They're, they're terrific, terrific band. You could even tell back then. But that was a great experience. I still play. I really love playing, and uh, that's a different, different, different interview. <laughs> <laughs> what was the name of the band again? Thump Theater. Thump Theater. Thump Theater. Okay. Um, so tell me how then you made the final connection, going back to Washington and joining the the Dole staff. Yeah. Well, I threw my hat hat in the ring. And uh, they called me to meet, uh, meet Dole in Washington. And uh, so I did. I flew in uh, one day. And uh, <laughs> it was uh, kind of a day in the life that I would experience for 13 years. But I was just a green rookie then. And so I remember getting there bright and early. I stayed at a friend's house and got up all, you know, fired up to, to go to the hill, and I went to Dole's office up on the hill. At that time, I was in the Dirksen office, just kind of catty corner from the Capitol. And I went up, and the first person I saw there was Betty Meyer, who was the secretary at the time. And she was very nice, and she had a great way of, of saying, um, you know, Senator Dole is really busy, and he's actually not going to meet with you at your appointed time. You know, so I got, I got put into the bullpen. And I really didn't have, I had no comprehension of what a senator's daily life was like, especially for someone like Bob Dole. So I had no idea what I was stepping into. And, uh, 
And so I sat in a chair for a real long time. <laughs> and I got to meet the staff one by one because I was there and it kept, you know, I looked like a piece of furniture out in the, in the reception area. And so they took pity on me and as we started talking, Scott Richardson was one of them and they toured me around the office. And uh, as, as it went in the way the Senate was operating that day and all the commitments, I didn't meet with Senator Dole until um, almost like five or six o'clock p.m. <laughs> so the whole day had gone by and I went out to lunch, but I got to meet the staff. And uh, I'll never forget this. I was sitting in um, Dole's private office, is kind of what we called it, where he had his, you know, his, his kind of inner sanctum in his desk and where he'd go to have some peace and quiet and meet with people. And I remember sitting there by myself and it was kind of dark late in the day and I didn't know what to expect. I was exhausted at this time. I actually had a, like a bronchitis to boot and I was going through my head, you know, what am I going to say, you know, and how to say it. And, you know, it was, I was very nervous and kind of felt like it was way over my head. It probably was, actually. But uh, I remember hearing his footsteps coming down the hallway. And uh, it was kind of a white-knuckle experience. And, and he came in and uh, shook hands. And I, I knew how to shake his hand because I'd covered him. And I, I knew he was a war hero. And uh, sat down to talk. And, you know, Senator Dole is not a conversationalist. And so it was kind of intimidating because I felt like I, I was on the kind of the defensive because I had to get, get to my points pretty quick because you know, there wasn't a lot of back and forth. But, uh, you know, he was, he was very gracious and I was honored just to be there. And I think, well, hey, if this thing doesn't work out, at least I could say I was, you know, in this office. And uh, so we, we talked for quite a while, actually. And uh, I was kept thinking of what would be the key line I could tell him that I was really sincere about working there and that I would you know, do a good job. I think the one thing I really had to offer was I, I could work really hard and I was used to working long hours. Also that I brought broadcast experience, which I think he was very much interested in at the time that I, that I had been in TV. And this was um, kind of a departure because I was really being compared with print people who traditionally Dole had had on his staff. They were print people, not TV people. So I think it was a strategic on his part to kind of have the vision to look ahead of the role of broadcasting and TV and this was the kind of the, the new frontier to, to really explore and to exploit if you will in, in the proper way. So we discussed that and uh, uh, I told him uh, that uh, you know I, I had you know friends on both sides of the aisle coming out of TV and I think they'd ran all their traps Part of my being there, and I'd, I'd built up a you know a good solid reputation on both sides of the aisle. That you know I was a straight straight shooter, but I think I got you know really good reviews from the Republican side because frankly that's the kind of the way I'd been shifting. Not that it was interfering with my reporting, but in just you know a conversation, acquaintance, going to lunch, and people knew where I kind of was was leaning. So uh, I, I kept thinking, what's you know what is the one Thing I can say to Dole that really nailed this thing. And I finally told him, I just worked up the cards. I said, I, I tell you one thing, Senator, I'll work my ass off. You know, and uh, I don't know if that was the, the thing that did it, but I think that I hope it made an impression because I think that, you know, he, he's uh, as hard a working person that you'll ever meet on the face of the earth. There's no question about it. And uh, the other thing I asked him in my naivete is, and the room was dark, and I was kind of sitting back. He was really sitting back, too. I just felt like I was in, the, you know, this kind of dark lair, you know, and it was just the sun was going down. And, uh, and 
I, I finally asked, I said, Senator, are you still interested in running for president? And I look back now, and it kind of, we can all chuckle at that one, but, but he kind of just, he didn't say anything, but he just kind of nodded his head. You know. So. Huh. What I tried to do, too, is, um, I, I, I didn't know kind of what to do. There's no training manual. Nobody there trained me, so I just relied on instincts and kind of blind trial and error when I joined the staff. What do you do? So my instinct was to do a lot, and that I tried to beef up the TV coverage and access. And again, coming from a reporting side, my strategy was promote Dole, get as much access as possible, get as much exposure as possible, do it now, you know, hit the ground running. And that really was the, the key to our communication strategy for the next 13 years where, where I was. That we ended up, in my opinion, doing more media than anybody else in Washington, including the President of the United States. We had an incredibly aggressive open-door media policy uh, with reporters, interviews. And I think in my naivete and my... Uh, kind of vibrancy to just start doing things uh, because it was really intimidating, uh, I really pushed hard to, for access. And back in the day, uh, you had the uh, what they call the Senate Recording Studio, which was kind of a free TV studio for U.S. Senators. And what they would do is they would come up and uh, I would ask them to shoot B-roll of uh, Senator Dole's hearings. Uh, we would end up, interest. I ended up interviewing Senator Dole. I'd kind of play reporter again. And back in the day, you, really, you didn't have satellites and everything else, but I put these video packages together and then send them back to the state. You know, and over the many years, then we would be more sophisticated, but then it would be a satellite send out and maybe conference calls and things of that sort. We can talk about that later. But So that was my first introduction. I would... You know, it's just started doing things, to trial and error. And he hadn't done anything like that before either. And so we stepped up the pace of uh, access and communications. And I'll never forget this. This is one thing I've never said, mentioned before, but I remember early on Elizabeth, because I got to know Elizabeth Dole very well and, you know, really liked her a lot and tremendous respect for her and, uh, you know, I very impressive individual in her own right, to say the least. But we kind of came a little bit of confidant simply because she was down at the White House at the time, the Office of uh, Liaison uh, with uh, President Reagan. And frankly, she was a little bit cut out because of the good old boy network down there. And so uh, every once in a while, you know, I was flattered. She'd call me for some advice, communications advice, and I'm going to do this, or this is happening. And, <laughs> and uh you know, I was, I was already trying to, I was kind of treading water, and I remember one day, one, uh, day she called me, and go, I get the Secretary of Education on the line with me. He, he needs advice and counsel, and so it was a, it was a really uh, pretty uh, breathtaking experience. But I remember she told me early on that, that Bob uh, liked what I was doing because he, I was uh, forcing him, if you will, to do more and forcing him to be more involved with media. Not that he hadn't been, but that I was really stepping it up. And it was almost like doing exercises that it's a good thing. 
you know, and so when I got that feedback from Elizabeth, I knew I was, I was on the right path. Because he would not have perhaps shared that kind of thought with you? Is right, that? right. Yeah, he, he was not a, uh, he was not a boss who would, gives you a lot of feedback. This is not a style. You pretty much have to figure it out for yourself, and that's just the way he is. Um, he, uh, you know, is a, was a very, um, is an imposing figure. You know, he's, he's, first of all, he was a, you know, a towering politician of his time, not just, of course, certainly Kansas, but he was a national, worldwide political figure. He had been on a national ticket, <laughs> and he had run for president in 1980. He had presidential ambitions. He was, a, you know, a lion in the Senate. And so for someone like me, green and raw, and, and there hadn't been a Washington, I mean, it was, it, was, uh, it was a heady experience, but also kind of frightening, to be honest with you, because I was really... Uh, uh, you know, over my head, and so I was really, uh, I was very flattered to be the one who was picked. But at the same time, you know, I was really working hard to <laughs> do the right job. And I'm, I'm always grateful for Dole for sticking by me and letting me make mistakes. When you left the office that day after that initial interview, did you have the job or did you? No. No, I did not. And I went back, and uh, it took a long time because I know they were interviewing other people. And uh, I remember uh, Dole came back to Kansas, and this was after the interview, and uh, I was covering some event, I remember, and Kim Wells, who's the chief of staff, then told me uh, that I, I should go and talk to Senator Dole again and see him at this event. And uh, it was a classic, again, Dole event that I'd, I'd be in a million of these after I joined him. But, you know, a huge ballroom, he was working the room, he made a speech, he had all these cons constituents to see and, you know, party, party folks in Kansas and chairman and all the rest, and he was doing his dull thing, working the room and shaking hands, and again, there was the same thing. I was just on the periphery, and I remember Kim Wells <laughs> telling him that I was here, and he had no reaction, and he kept working the room, so I just stood there forever, and uh, I finally had a brief interlude with him, but it, I didn't get great vibes, and I thought, well, you know, that's the end of me, <laughs> so... Uh, but then, uh, but then I did get the call. You know, Kim called me and told me they wanted to go through with it. So I was really blown away by that. So about how much time passed between that that first uh, interview and and your getting the call? It seemed like forever, to tell you the truth, because I was I had my TV career, which I loved. And I wanted to be in TV for a long time, and I was just at the point where I was sending out resume tapes to markets that, were, that I was really interested in moving up the typical TV world where you've got to keep fighting your way up to other markets. I want to go to Seattle or Portland. And I was starting to get nibbles from both of those markets, and I was r really excited. But then this political thing came in. And uh, finally, I, I, I got the calls. I remember going to my TV station the next day, and I went in to see my... Uh, uh, news director, Jim Hollis, had been along there. He was the anchor man there too in Topeka, kind of a famous guy. And he ran the newsroom, and I had been there for I guess four years and had a prominent role on TV. And, and again, I was kind of leaning towards staying actually because I loved TV so much. So I was trying to weigh moving to Washington and all of this stuff. And uh, at that point in time, I had a, a, a son as well. Had a little, I think he was two years old. In Topeka with my wife Christine 
And so uh, that weighed on me too. Do I want to relocate? All of this, I really want to stay in TV. At the time, even even Dole being Dole, I probably I, I had no idea what that was either. <laughs> and uh, and I, I like to say, if I had known what the job entailed later, I, I may have turned it down simply because it was so daunting, you know. But the, but then again, you know, thank God, you know, I pushed through the, the anxiety. But um, I remember going in to see Jim Hollis, and I said, you know, I've been offered the job to be Bob Dole's press secretary. And he literally turned around and started writing my resignation memo because he knew, oh, my God, there's no, what are you, are you kidding? <laughs> you know, there is no choice. I almost think back if you'd offered me another nickel an hour, I probably would have stayed. <laughs> so because I like TV, but that's kind of a hyperbole. But, you know, so the, the memo went out immediately, and so that's, that's how it happened. Were there, <clears throat> over you say 13 years with, with yeah. the senator, were there uh, sort of chapters to, to your service as, as press secretary? Did you see you know, changes at certain points and whatnot, or was it pretty much a continuum? No, there were chapters. Uh, it's a good question because, um, first of all, he was the kind of the towering senator from Kansas. So when I first joined him, he was chairman of the Senate Finance Committee. And those two were you know, Senator Bobdell. Well, actually, there were three. There was Senator, Senator Bob Dole, the national figure. There was Bob Dole, the giant Kansas senator. And there was Bob Dole, the, the lion of the Senate Finance Committee. Three separate roles, platforms, opportunities to you know, make a difference. And he, and he did in all three. So you had can, uh, international and national media at the highest levels. You had all of the Kansas media, including weekly newspapers in 105 counties. And then you also had the Senate Finance Committee, which was the epicenter. It wasn't Wall Street. It was the epicenter of finance and taxes and tax reform, uh, international trade, labor law, uh, farm uh, subsidies, disaster relief. It went on and on and on. But it was the tax code um, and all of the things that Dole um, had an impact on. And he was just, you know, ripping through all of that. He, he was... He was, he was, you know, a giant leader. I mean, everything he did, of course, was leadership. That's what he's, that's what he's all about. And so he had really made the uh, Senate Finance Committee a major uh, place to be for media and Washington. So those were three completely different things. And what proportion of time were you devoting to each of those three? I had to do all of them. And that was really daunting, too, because the, the Senate Finance Committee was highly technical. You had all of these um, expert national uh, reporters, specialty uh, tax reporters, Wall Street types, lobbyists galore, uh, high-powered, brilliant staffers, all connected to the Senate Finance Committee on extremely technical and complicated uh, tax and finance issues. You know, so I had, to, I, I had to learn that, like, really fast. And Dole had this incredibly talented, high-powered, staff with the Senate Finance Committee, they're all from Harvard and the Ivy Leagues. I mean, it was like, uh, it was incredible. And, and it was a, uh, almost like a submarine in the basement of uh, the Dirksen building because this is where the Finance Committee was. But the Senate, fin Senate Finance Committee staff was down in the basement, no windows, you know, and he, he started using me kind of not only as the press guy, but kind of as his lieutenant to give orders. 
not that I was giving orders, but I was the messenger. So he'd say, hey, why don't you go down and talk to Sheila, you know. And so I'd have to go down and talk to Sheila Burke in this high-powered, uh, you know, Rod DeArmond, uh, Bob Lighthizer, some of these legendary staffers, brilliant people. And here was, here was I guy, this, you know, low, lowly uh, Kansas TV guy going down telling him what to do and don't want this and wants that. And, uh, and I'd go down there, and they're all, you know, with these stacks of papers about this high on their desks, and they were pounding away on all this incredibly complicated stuff. It was like, it must have been 12 people down there in this, you know, basement, you know, this, like, secret place where all these staff guys were. And I'd have to tell them what to do. It was on, you know, like, a Social Security was under Dole's purview. So I, I was talking to a Social Security expert, the tax expert, uh, a, uh, an expert on health care uh, legislation, as it pertains to uh, also women, um, infant and children, like food stamp programs. And those are all, all under Dole. And he was making reforms and, uh, and news on every one of them, every day, every single day. Now, then you had all of his work in the Senate going on with all the legislation and then everything involved with Kansas, getting you know money for Kansas and projects for Kansas and federal contracts for Kansas. I mean, yeah, that would be a whole book unto itself. So I, I know I'm going to use the word now, and you're going to say, well, it never applied. But can you sort of go through what might be called a typical day? Yeah. Now, see, Dole was always in demand by the media. And like I said, and I, this is a true fact, we were doing more media than anybody else in Washington. And it was kind of a natural um, convergence because in my... Uh, kind of naivete and just energy to do things and just, and again, I thought, you know, more access is better. Uh, and I think Dole liked that, but his thing was he, he, you know, he loved, you know, coverage and, you know, that's what you, you, that's your platform to get your message in. This is what I'm doing. This is what I want to do. This is my vision. This is my goal. Uh, I'm here to do A, B, and C. And uh, so we started doing all of this together and so what would happen? Here, here is actually a somewhat of a typical day. I'm not making this up. So you'd start with, in the morning, we'd do the Today Show. So what does that mean? That means he has to get up, and I have to get up at, uh, you know, 5 o'clock in the morning. And get your stuff together, drive into the uh, NBC studios, which actually are way out of the city. And you'd, you'd uh, get to NBC... And you'd go in there and uh, get ready to do the, a live interview on the Today Show, or remote, you know, back to New York. And so, okay, that would start at 7 a.m. You'd have to, you know, by the time they got to Dole, maybe it's 7.15 or something like that. And you'd do a live interview on the Today Show. Make news, guaranteed, made news. Then I'd get in the car with him, with, with his driver, uh, and then we'd go to a morning speech downtown, maybe at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. So Dole would walk in, and he would do um, uh, a speech to maybe 1,500 people in the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. And he would have the outlines of a speech. Uh, his forte was definitely not reading a speech. He's, he's uh, you know, not, not very good at that. But he's a dynamo and one of the greatest off-the-cuff speakers probably in political history. And once he got up there and really started getting his groove, I mean, he just would nail you back to your seat because he was just so powerful, so um, 
in charge, if you will, of powerful leadership and uh, what he was talking about on legislation and his knowledge of it was just incredible and people were just spellbound. And it was all off the top of his head and then he would mix in these incredible one-liners just out of nowhere and you just, it, you'd be laughing, you know, just like you're watching uh, Jay Leno or some late night comic. He was that good. And you'd go through all of that and, and, then, and then you'd do Q&A from the audience and you'd just, just be blown away by it. Okay, and then you get back to the car, and then you're going up to the hill to start, you know, the regular day. And most people, you know, were still just getting to work. And then you'd hit the, uh, hit the office, and there were a million things already on the agenda. Maybe, you know, uh, uh, lobbyists uh, in the, uh, the reception room. Maybe some um, visiting dignitaries from Kansas. There was a full agenda in the Senate. He had a... Uh, top meeting, start, I mean, a Senate Finance Committee hearing being at 10 a.m. sharp, you know, 12 other senators and, you know, packed hearing room. and uh, This is the way it went. And then at lunchtime, while he was juggling it, being the Senate doing legislation, then it'd pop out of the Senate chamber and meet with uh, visitors from Kansas, go back into the Senate. Maybe I'd set up an interview. He'd come out and do maybe a 15-minute interview with the Washington Post, then he'd go back in. Then uh, he'd go over to the Senate Finance Committee, which is in another building, in the back in the Dirksen building, so he'd have to get on the little shuttle train in the, underneath the Capitol to go over to the Senate Finance Committee, where I'm riding over with a couple of staff people, and they're briefing him and giving him documents. And then he you know, walks into the Senate Finance Committee, and he's, he's the chairman, and he you know, hits the gavel, and you're often running on a very complicated you know, tax issue. Then that goes into the lunch hour, we're back in the car. We go downtown. He has a luncheon speech, maybe at the uh, convention center to 10,000 people, or maybe it's uh, you know uh, the ca- national cattlemen meeting somewhere. So we'd have a luncheon speech, maybe even two luncheon speeches, or a fundraiser. We get back in the car, and then after uh, you know gobbling down uh, a quick lunch at his uh, desk, by the time he got back, which usually was you know Senate bean soup. Uh, skim milk and, a, and an apple pie. That was his favorite meal. He'd eat at his desk, and then whammo, uh, he'd be back into you know whatever else was going on. Other hearings too, by the way, it wasn't just the Senate Finance Committee. This was on the you know uh, it was in demand at the Agriculture Committee and wherever it may be. And then we'd also have events ongoing in the. Uh, office where maybe you have a cabinet secretary like Jim Baker coming up wanting Dole's votes and lining up votes in the Senate, whatever it might be. So then that would go on and then as you got late into the day you may do a few more interviews and that night you may be going downtown to a fundraiser and then another speech. And so by the time that was all over, you know, you're talking about 7 o'clock and actually in some nights would end up doing Nightline ABC Nightline Live with Bob Dole, and that show didn't go on until, what, 10.30 at night. So that'd be your day. In fact, I remember one day, we flew to Minneapolis for lunch and came back in one day because he did a, um, a major speech in Minneapolis, but we went to work in the morning on the hill at a private plane, uh, take us to uh, Minneapolis, gave a speech lunch, back on Capitol Hill and worked for the rest of the day. 
And what would the day before this typical day have been like? I mean, was, it, was there a lot of planning going into all these events, or did he hit them so, somewhat cold? Or who was doing these outlines and you know, fill in the blank? Yeah, I don't, I don't you know, frankly, how we uh, managed to, to keep it all. I mean, he, he had it all in his head, you know, never missed a beat. And, uh, you know, he had you know, Betty Meyer and then Joanne Coe would be, you know, kind of interlocking all the schedules and appearances. And, and then I was, every day I had a media memo to him. You know, here are the requests that I think, or at least, you know, you know, for your consideration. I mean, we got, I could have given him, a, you know, a list 100 long. Everybody wanted them. And so I'd give my recommendations, and then he would send back in the memo a check mark about, you know, yes, or put an X mark through the one he didn't want to do, or sometimes he'd make a comment uh, about, about the, uh, the reporter or the issue or whatever it might be. So that's how we did that, but then I had to shoehorn my interviews in and, and integrate with the other schedules that are already going, going on. So it was, it was daunting, and you know, people have no idea <clears throat> the stamina that it takes to uh, pull off a, a schedule like he did. I mean, um, uh, first of all, he had Olympic stamina. I've never seen anyone with more stamina. People don't realize that it is liken him to an athlete because of the stamina that he had, uh, just the, you know, who walks like a speed walker, he's, you know, long legs, who walk really fast, strong, dynamic, you know, guy, tall, you know, almost intimidating and, uh, you know, strong. And, and, and just to keep the schedule, he never missed a beat. He was up early in the morning, he went to bed late, he got up early, never missed a beat. And when you had to be somewhere, he was going. You know, he didn't wait around. Either, you know, you went with him or you were left behind. But, uh, you know, it's a guy you just couldn't help but admire really in every way. First of all, his dedication to Kansas, his dedication to the issues, his passion for the issues, his passion for the state, to do it right, to make sure that Kansas was well represented. And then uh, his, his just complete focus on the job that he had to do, and he could do it all and he could pull it off. So I'm a stickler for details here just a little bit. Let's, let's take the Today Show and the, and the address to the cattlemen. Uh, would someone prepare him for those things, or would he hit the Today Show just sort of and whatever they threw at him? Yeah, we knew what the issue was going to be, and uh, I'd provide some you know, general talking points. Uh, I, I found that it was better almost to let him do his own thing. And usually he'd... Uh, <laughs> You'd have the best laid plans, and then usually, of course, in the back of his kind of brilliant mind, he'd always have something extra to throw in there that always made news. And you kind of sit back watching in the monitor when you're in the green room, you know, watching it all, which is why they loved having Dolan, because it always made news. Uh, so with the cattlemen, they'd usually have a staffer, like the, the agriculture staff guy would write a speech, which was, you know, again, very kind of dry and, you know, they're not speechwriters. It wasn't their job, but they gave them, but they would certainly give Dole all of the technical information they would need about the farm bill or cattle legislation, things of that sort. But he'd look it over, he'd read a little bit of it, and then it'd go off and it just, you know, from the top of his head really get into it. And, of course, it was always better, including the stuff I gave him <laughs> most of the time. Um, did you think of yourself primarily as a kind of mouthpiece for him, or were you really involved in a lot of strategizing as well? That's a good question. Um, I, I, I grew into the strategy part. Uh, in the beginning, uh, again, I was 
I was facilitating, I was doing writing, and, and yeah, I, got, I was a spokesman as soon as I got there because the, the media was calling all the time. So I, I, I was doing that and then coordinating with the staff, and I did a lot of press releases. We put out more press releases than anybody in the history of Washington. I mean, we just, it was unbelievable. We could put out two or three a day, two or three a day. A lot of them went out to Kansas. The others we took up to the uh, press room up on the, in the Capitol, put them in racks, you know, Kennedy, Dole, and all the senators. But you know, Dole's was always very popular because of who he was and the news we were making with our press releases. So we did a lot of press releases, um, uh, also supplemented by a lot of interviews, whether it was on phone, bringing reporters into the Dole's office, or, or broadcast, where the, you know, set up the TV cameras. We did a lot of that. But little by little, I, you know, as I gained my confidence and um, figured out I, I did have something to offer, and I was able to uh, maybe analyze and process it all. So yeah, I was, uh, you know, I was proud of the fact that I was able to really, uh, with many other people, but establish myself in part of the strategy. And then more and more, I kind of took it upon myself. And, I'm, I'm, and again, I'm always very, very grateful for Senator Dole for one, letting me make mistakes, sticking by me. Uh, I think he saw something in me, but maybe I didn't see it at the time. But, you know, I, I worked hard to get into it. And then when I realized that, wait a minute, he, he should be get, getting a lot better written materials. He should be looking better when he's speaking. And, and so, so I really started taking over a lot of the day-to-day -day speech writing, if you will, more for the Senate, writing it more like, you know, for sound bites and improving and, and enhancing. So I think I did play a, a role in that uh, and more and more got involved with that. So, you know, with one-liners or other things like that. So, and Dole was a great, you know, platform because he was so, so great on his feet that anything he could supplement, you know, he'd use. And small things made a difference. For instance, we'd have the, uh, Senator Dole would use uh, a loose-leaf notebook uh, to, you know, read his speeches from. But then they were originally, a lot of it was on, like, one page, but they were small print lines and, you know. And so I started making the print bigger and the spacing bigger. And then we put the pages in plastic pages and then put them in a loose-leaf notebook with, you know, a lot of pages. But at the same time, because of his, uh, you know, uh, war injuries and stuff, so it was easier for him to turn with the plastic pages. So he'd use them at the podium in the Senate when he was down in the well, you know, the majority leader and stuff in those years, which is a whole other thing. But, you know, we, we, we got more into, you know, more noticeable phraseology, if you will. Let's talk about the transition from finance chair to to the leader, and how that impacted your operation. Yeah. Uh, you know, when when Senator Dole announced that he was interested in being the Senate Majority Leader, uh, I remember at the time too, and I'm trying to write a, a little bit about that in the book uh, that I'm trying to write. That at the time, it's kind of funny when you look back, but the a lot of the reporters didn't give Dole a chance to win. Domenici and Stevens and I think McClure, you know, they were all in the race, and I kept thinking, what? I don't, I don't get it. I mean, I don't, why the, the handicapping like that? It just didn't make sense to me because I thought, first of all, it's Bob Dole, number one, <laughs> and I'll bet on him. And then secondly, I knew the kind of um, 
uh, focus and intensity to bring to it. And, and as, a, as a politician, campaigning other politicians. So I had a lot of faith in him that, that he would win. And that, that was a really, really uh, round-the-clock campaign, a very, very uh, competitive with the other senators and everything else. And, uh, and uh, I, I remember uh, thinking, my God, if he won this thing, this would be the whole world would change, you know. And uh, so that was a very historic day because it takes place in the old Senate chamber across, you know, up on, and right just down from the U.S. Senate, uh, you know, where all the Clay Calhoun debates took place. And, you know, it's, it's like electing a pope. It's all secret and secret ballots. And, and at the time I was outside and the, the hallways in the Senate were just jam-packed with reporters and staffers. I mean, it was like hundreds of people because this was, uh, this was momentous. Whoever emerged from that room as the new pope of the Senate, you know, was going to be the new giant Washington. Everybody wanted it. And there were, I believe, something like 30 TV cameras set up in the Senate hallway. And again, looking back, I kind of, that was my neighborhood, that was going to be my neighborhood for the next eight or nine years. You know, I'd know every square inch, I'd know every tile on the floor. I'd spend my life there, you know, till two o'clock in the morning many times. But at the time, it was all kind of swimming. And, uh, and so there were a lot of uh, secret ballots and ties and they had to go through a lot of different balloting. And uh, I remember Howard Green told me the story, and maybe he told you the story, but uh, he was Secretary of the Senate. Not sec- he was, uh, what do they call him? What, Sec- yeah, Secretary of the Republican Party. I think. Yeah, or to the, uh, to the leader. Or, but he, w- he ran the cloakroom, is what right, we said. Right, he, was, right. he was the lieutenant on the, he was the floor boss of the Republican leader. So anyway, I remember he, he was inside the room when they were counting the votes. And, uh, you know, he had a good relationship with Dole, and uh, he kind of, he, he was one of the ones counting the ballots. So when it was a 20-20 tie, you know, and all this stuff, and I remember uh, Howard told me the story that they were counting the ballots, and, and the last time when they finally went through with the third or fourth ballot, and Dole won, and, and, and Green looked at Dole and gave him a wink and a quick thumbs up. So Dole knew that he was going to be the new Senate Majority Leader. And that's when um, both of our worlds changed. And uh, for a while there, I was unclear if I was going to go over there with him. And it was kind of a tough time for me because, you know, I, I felt like I'd earned it, and, and uh, you know, and I wanted to be part of it, and I wanted to continue to do everything I can to, to help his agenda and, and be loyal, and it was so exciting, and, and the responsibilities that he would have, and certainly a platform upon which he could run for president, and I wanted to be a part of that, and I felt like I wanted to continue on with that. But with the uh, power, the naked power just lying out there surrounding the Senate Majority Leader, there were a lot of other forces who wanted to get in there, and so they wanted their guy in there, and they wanted to have influence inside that office, including inside the Dole world. You know, some people wanted me out, and they wanted somebody else in. You know, or somebody downtown was saying, whispering, there was a whisper campaign going on that, you know, maybe you ought to do this, maybe people are talking, and maybe you'd be better served this or that, and, you know, this is raw politics. And I knew all of that was going on, so it was a tough time for me. And uh, I felt like I was twisting in the wind. And it was uh, very, very 
tough time for me because it was unclear what was going to happen. I remember Scott Richardson and I would walk over to the Capitol and we were walking through uh, Howard Baker's office, who was the, you know, the previous leader, and he, it was now vac vacated the office because Dole was coming in. And I remember Scott and I walking through the office and it was all empty and, and, and Scott was going, hey, this is going to be your office. And I remember looking out of that window and it was night, we were always there at night. I remember looking out my window that I should be looking out for the next eight years, but I didn't know it at the time. But it was typical, you know, pitch black night, looking down the mall and Pennsylvania Avenue and the lights and the traffic and you could see all the buildings and the Washington Monument. It kind of made me shiver because I was thinking, wow, you know, if I'm over in here, this is a whole nother world again, you know, and uh, it, was, it was exciting, but it was also kind of daunting too. But I felt like I, you know, I deserved the shot. I wanted to be part of it. And, uh, but it, it was unclear. So I really kind of twisted in the wind there for a while. So how did you find out that you were the lucky one? Ah, that's a great Dole story. And it says, uh, it says a lot about Dole, uh, just um, his kind of personality. We, we all, we're all different. And again, for him, you know, he wasn't a guy that would, you know, sit down and converse and it's just, it, it's not him. Uh, so I was still his press secretary, went to all the events, we were doing the Today Show, the, you know, <laughs> the night shows, the speeches, the traveling all over the country. And uh, I didn't know what was going on and the time, the clock was running and all of that stuff. And so I'll never forget this. Uh, we were at a uh, luncheon speech at the, uh, I believe the uh, Capitol Hilton, or the, it's the one, not the, it's the Hilton that's downtown. Not the Hilton where Reagan was shot, whatever it was. Is it the D.C. Hilton? And we were going down an escalator, and as usual, you know, Dole was kind of ahead of me, and I was behind him. And uh, as we were coming off the escalator, uh, he ran into some uh, constituents, either lobbyists or somebody, and uh, he. He talked to him, and he turned, and he said, Hey, meet Walt Riker. He's my uh, press secretary in the majority leader's office. That's how I found out. <laughs> so, uh, wow, I was just really blown away. And, uh, you know, was, that's really where, and I, keep in mind, I'd been with Dole since 1981, and this was now November of 1984, and probably now getting into December because you know he was taking over for leader in January of '85, so all of a sudden my world had changed again. Now again, I'd done everything with Dole. I traveled probably to every state. I'd done everything you could possibly imagine. We'd done more meetings than anybody else. I'd survived the whole finance committee thing, and that's a whole other story. Maybe we can get into. It's kind of fascinating, but all of a sudden now this was Bob Dole skyrocketing into you know what I consider to be the second most powerful position in the world, the Senate Majority Leader of the United States of America. The first is the President of the United States. The second is, without question, the Majority Leader of the Senate because he's the only person in the world that can stop the President's agenda. And he has the power of the Senate rules, different from the House, different from anywhere else, to be the most influential, either roadblock, gateway, modifier, doctor, whatever you want to call it, of the president's agenda, and that's absolutely true, whether it's Republican or Democrat. So, okay, you know, the parliament and then London and 
go all over the world, there's nothing like the Senate. And then being the, the boss of the Senate is the second most powerful position in the world. So that was, uh, that was a whole other daunting experience. And that's where we really started, you know, rolling. I'm going to change tape. Yeah. All right. You were, you were mentioning <clears throat> your strategy for uh, during the Finance Committee days as, as press secretary. So tell us that story. Right. Uh, you know, I was really fortunate to have um, a really smart guy at the time, smart kid, Scott Richardson, who was my deputy press secretary, who, by the way, had to lobby uh, Dole to hire him as the deputy press secretary because uh, at the time he was, uh, I believe, in constituent services. And, you know, Scott, I could tell, first of all, was you know, a really smart guy, really strategic, had a real feel for communications, and I thought he would be really valuable to be the second guy simply because he, he knows Dole, incredibly loyal to Bob Dole. Uh, I liked him immediately, but I also could see that he was smart and he you know, was kind of visionary and, and had good ideas. And um, so I had to go to Dole and lobby him for Scott to be my number two guy, and I did. I, I worked on Dole because I was convinced Scott was the right guy, and I was right. He was the right guy, and I think Dole came to appreciate that as well. Uh, and we, we were a great team. You know, Scott and I were back in these early days I was talking about before where, again, we were green and naive maybe, but at the same time, we worked our asses off, and we had a lot of good ideas. I think we broke the mold uh, in doing media and communications and getting reporters involved. I think before, it was a very kind of, um, uh, kind of a strict regimen where maybe you pick one guy and you do that and do this. And, and we, our, our strategy was more the merrier. If you want to get your message out, you want to communicate, well, what do you want to do? Do you want one telephone or do you want two telephones? We wanted two telephones. So we thought the more media, the, the merrier. And Scott and I had the idea that we're having these Senate Finance Committee uh, press conferences, if you will. Well, if you could get 10 reporters in there, why not 50? Or one TV camera, why not, you know, 20? And why not fill the room with all kinds of people? It's just common sense. If, you're, if you were putting on a political rally, how many people do you want to hear your message, especially back then when you didn't have cable and satellite and, and digital and, and, and all the rest, and you didn't have that many reporters on the Hill, you know, it was a, a no-brainer. So <laughs> Scott and I decided, hey, let's blow this thing out. So Dole was going to have a, you know, a very important announcement and hold a press conference to talk about it. And it's a big tax reform bill and deficit reduction. That was the big thing. So anyway, so Scott and I would just sit down with books, and we'd religiously call everybody that we could possibly think of to come to the press conference. So we found that it was interesting, two things. One, like the bigwigs, the, the network reporters, you know, they, they were used to being called, and they came or didn't come. But it was more of the medium and little guys. They'd never been called before. So they thought it was an honor. And they'd always say, God, thanks for calling. We'll be right there. So some guy would be running up there with his camera crew to be part of this because they'd never been asked before. And we invited them to smaller papers. And then we'd also go down and call lobbyists, you know, and to give them a heads up going, hey, you know, Dole's making this major announcement on deficit reduction and, and, and tax loopholes. You may, may want to be there. And then Scott and I made up the, the kicker line. And it would be, by the way, it's really going to be big. 
We would throw that in every time. By the way, it's really going to be big. Maybe we didn't know how big. We were just, but it worked every time because I'll never forget this. And I'm sure Scott said, told you the same story, but I'll never forget this. We, the first time we, we pulled this strategy and we had the big Senate Finance Committee hearing room and they had the horseshoe uh, uh, the pa uh, desk panel, you know, for the, uh, for the senators. And then they had a big open space and then they had all this, you know, room in the back. And then behind that, behind the horseshoe, there was a door that went to an ante room where the staffers and the senators would get ready for hearings. And we got in there with a couple of, uh, with Dole's aides and we were talking about it. And, and he, he basically asked me, he goes, is this, is this going to be any good to get, you know, what kind of turnout do you think it's going to be? And I think he was almost like putting us on almost, but he kind of asked us and, and we ended up, oh, it's really going to be big. <laughs> we used our own line. And I'll never forget this at that first deficit reduction press conference that Scott and I just went through the phone book, and I opened the door for Senator Dole to go in to be go up to the podium, and and it was like uh, it was like staring at the sun because of all the TV camera lights. You know, you couldn't even see anything. The room was so you know blinded by TV lights. And then when your eyes kind of cleared, you see in the back there were like 20 TV cameras. There are a, a mass of reporters up front. There were probably five or six still photographers in the well, and then just packed with lobbyists around the, the rim of the room. I was standing room only, and it was like Scott and I would look at each other and go, oh, my God, you know, just completely blown away by what he was saying. And then Dole was too. And then, you know, Dole was right in his element because he was such a powerful communicator, and he was going to talk about uh, the legislation and the reform, and, and we were making news like that round the clock. So it really, it really paid off and it really ushered in a new era. I mean, it sounds kind of silly, but it really did of the way we approached doing press conferences and communications and blow them out. There's a risk, though, that you might be seen as call, you know, calling Wolf too often or, or something. I mean, you always had to have something to deliver, right? Right. Well, that's the great thing with Bob Dole. He always did. Every once in a while, you know, you did. you're right. I mean, you can't have a winner every time. But but the reforms that he was leading and the finance committee was so important to the national economy and, and everybody in America, that from food stamps to you know, taxes, that it was riveting. And he was making news and, you know, ended up the Washington Post calling him the Lion of Washington, you know, the new Lion of Washington. And that was really a direct result of the communication support we were, we were giving him. Now, he was, <laughs> I mean, we're talking about, you know, a monster, a legislative monster doing, you know, a giant in the business. He was doing it, but all we were doing was supporting it with enhanced communications. And we felt, hey, it's working. Why would we stop? Were some of these press conferences ones where he shared time with uh, one, of his, one or more of his colleagues, or was it pretty much the Bob Dole show? No, he would, he, he would share. I'll tell you what, that's a, a one point I want to make about Senator Dole is, and he, doesn't, he may not get credit for this, uh, I, I can tell you that no one was more inclusive than Senator Dole, uh, to the point sometimes where I just kind of shake my head, how does he do it? But, you know, with, with Democrats and strong, you know, liberal, uh, you know, opponents in the Senate, um, uh, you know, guys from the House, you know, freshman senators, I mean, Democrats, I mean, he'd, he'd be pulling chairs out for making sure they were in the, you know, they, they were able to speak and be seen and he, he was inclusive to a fault, I always thought. It was, it's incredible, but it, again, speaks to the kind of a guy he was, that 
he truly was someone who could work with the other side, work with anybody. Jesse Helms, you know, Ted Kennedy, uh, it didn't make any difference. You know, farmers, you know, city people, Charlie Rangel, uh, even people that were so strongly against him. He was, he was polite, he was inclusive, he was friendly, he always gave somebody um, access to uh, uh, the forum, debate time, whatever it was, amazing, just incredible. How did, how did he change as he became leader? How did, did you it's see the a same. change? It was even more so. Very inclusive. No, no, I didn't mean just inclusive, but just as a person. Oh, as a did, person? Yeah. Did you see a change? Uh, his, uh, his leadership uh, began to be noticed because he, you'd seen him in all these different venues, not forgetting that he also ran for, as vice president. It had been done so much before I ever joined him. But that, you know, his powerful leadership and his skills and also his kind of brilliance uh, really came to the fore because it was now you were, you know, you were in the, the, the big, big, big leagues and you were seen every single day running the Senate and being at the White House and being the spokesperson for the, for the Senate and the president sometimes or opposing the president. But, you know, and, and again, we kept up the pace. We did more media than anybody else and more access. So I think the world began to see him as legitimate, heavyweight, worthy of, uh, of uh, a presidential run. That's really how it, how it went down. What was your participation in his senatorial and then 88 uh, campaigns? Well, uh, you know, again, uh, I was really honored to, to be the press secretary. So um, my office was right next to his. I was the close per closest person. <laughs> I like to say this. I was the closest person to Bob Dole for the closest person to Bob Dole in the world for eight or nine years. Why? <laughs> because my desk was closest to his. And but we were separated by a door, but uh, when he opened that door, I was looking right at him. So our desks were really only about 15 feet apart, but we were separated by you know a door and a wall. This was in the Capitol building in the majority leader's office. So I think that's the importance that he put on communications. And uh, we did you know round-the-clock communications. So when he opened the door and he was there, and I could learn so much. And after a while. When I was involved more in you know all the strategy and stuff, I you know I, I could open the door and go in to see him, you know when I felt it was the right time. It, you know, it wasn't one of these guys who was going in every five minutes. You had to pick your shots, but um, that was really an honor. And I look back on that as uh, one of the highlights of my life, being on the majority leader's staff and working for him so closely and, and seeing what he did in the in the uh, Senate as the leader was just astounding. And then. Kind of one of my dreams when I was on the Hill was I actually had full access to the U.S. Senate anytime I wanted to, to walk in those doors. And I, I never once took it for granted. I was there for nine years, and I never once took that privilege for walking in that Senate because only a few people had that kind of access. So did you go out on the campaign trail with him, or were you pretty much Washington-based? Yeah. Uh, I kind of back up for a minute because by the time I left in 1993, I had been to 58 foreign countries with Senator Dole. I had been to 50 states many times over in the United States. So, I mean, just think about that. Uh, we had met every world leader 
we had been behind the Iron Curtain, we had met, we'd been in the Kremlin, we'd been in the Parliament, you know, been in Thailand, I mean, China, you, you, we've done it all. We met Deng Xiaoping in Beijing, I mean, it doesn't get more amazing than that. So he was uh, an incredible uh, student and uh, uh, I won't say master of foreign affairs, but he doesn't get enough credit for that. He was, had an incredible affinity for foreign affairs, um, a, an ease of uh, understanding of issues, whether it was you know, in um, Armenia, Thailand, Cambodia, uh, Germany, the EU, uh, Russia. Uh, by the time he, he, we would land on some of these trips in places like Taiwan, he'd be making news and he'd be analyzing things, he'd be asking you know, great questions of these world leaders. And, he just had a tremendous understanding of that, which I always thought would be uh, so so uh, powerful for him if he were, were to get to the White House, because he, he was really uh, sharp on foreign affairs, kind of like a Nixon. And in these travels, uh, what was your role and what were you doing while he was meeting with these people and so forth? I was uh, head of the, uh, I was part of the congressional delegation. So we usually took a number of senators with us, and I went with Dole as his communications leader, but also as um, the communications head of these congressional delegations. So we went to you know 58 foreign countries uh, from people uh, you know, like Gorbachev. We met with Saddam Hussein for three hours in Baghdad before the first Gulf before the Gulf War. Met with Margaret Thatcher, um, Deng Xiaoping in China. Uh, all throughout South America, every continent, you know, Morocco, Egypt, uh, just a mind-boggling uh, experience. Well, I got to see him in action. I can tell you what, he was a foreign affairs heavyweight. And you're right, that, has, that does tend to be overlooked uh, in, in speaking of Dole. Um, since I interviewed uh, Mike Glasner yesterday, who was describing his role as sort of the right-hand man, how, how did... Did, did your roles overlap? Oh, or? yeah. We were joined at the hip. Uh, Mike Glasner and I were like brothers. We are a band of brothers in the traveling uh, world of Bob Dole. And so uh, w he and I probably, we did more miles by far than anybody else. And we always went out on the trips with Dole together. And, you know, Mike was an unsung hero. He was behind the scenes doing a lot of heavy lifting and dirty work and always there for Dole and, and kept things hopping. And, you know, great guy, guy of integrity small-town Kansas kid. I liked him a lot. And, you know, when you're involved, uh, you know, in that kind of band of brothers environment on the road, late hours, long trips, things got to happen on time. You get up in the morning at some, you know, motel in Green Bay, Wisconsin. You got to make the breakfast on time. You got to have, the, you know, the, the agenda right and the talking points and the little interview with the Milwaukee Sentinels got to be done right on time and the cars at a certain time. You're going to the airport to get on the private plane because you're going to um, uh, uh, South Dakota. And then from there, you're going to Idaho in just in one day. And so Mike and I lived in that world. And we usually, uh, after the long, long day, and, you know, Dole went to bed. And uh, we put Dole to bed. Uh, he and I would just get in a room, you know, one of our rooms, and just try to relax and, you know, talk and kind of review the day and, and, and share a few laughs. You know, it strikes me, having 
<clears throat> talked to him yesterday, you today, and then thinking back to Kim Wells and Scott Richardson and, and uh, others, there was a sort of generational difference here operating in the Dole operation, wasn't there? Yeah, that's and a good point. And I imagine you, it was easy for you all to affiliate because you were sort of the same age and you have a lot of personality um, common, common elements. Yeah, that's too, true. I think. That's a good point. And, and it's, it's, it's interesting that Dole was able to uh, relate to you all and to find you all uh, in sort of one age, age group. Is, is that, I, I know I'm not speaking well on this. No, you're, you, you understand the point. I'm, yeah, very much so. I think that's a great point. I, and I thought about that when I was on the staff because you're right. And uh, we had, I think Dole liked the, the energy of youth because he was so youthful, eternally youthful, and, and, and eternally energetic. And, you know, my thing is, look, and I tell people this, if you couldn't keep up with him, if you didn't have his same kind of, you know, close to his stamina, or at least you know, trying to keep up with him, and worked, worked your ass off, you were willing to do 24-7, you wouldn't last a week, you'd be gone. And some, some were gone in a week. But if you had that youthful energy and he saw that you were keeping up and, and you were doing everything possible and you had that infusion of youth and enthusiasm, then you were going to make it. And, and that's what we were in this kind of band of brothers, you know, the, you know, the, the you know, really hardworking guys who really were total believers, passionate about Dole, did, we would do anything for him, and we did. <laughs> and, uh, but then he had also, he also had the Senate Finance Committee geniuses in the staff. They were a different breed. That was kind of a different culture. So they spoke their language, and they were kind of that Ivy League thing. We were the kind of KU Kansas Mafia guys who I think Dole liked, you know, and uh, then you had, uh, he hung out with, you know, old guys all day long, if that's what the way to look at it, older people in the Senate all day long, okay? <laughs> and in the, in the Finance Committee hearings, so you had other senators and, all, you know, whatever it was. So there was a mix of cultures who were all different. But <clears throat> within his own operation, <clears throat> were there some gray eminences that, sort of his generation or so forth that he was relying on? Did Bob Ellsworth would be kind of in the kitchen cabinet and, uh, you know, I mean, people like Richard Nixon was a, was a counselor and advisor. Uh, he, you know, cabinet members and Elizabeth Dole and, uh, you know, we worked directly with presidents. So, yeah, there was that whole other world that we were, we weren't a part of. But in terms of the staff, there were no older people other than, I guess, some of the women might, maybe. Is that, would that be right? Yeah, pretty much. So we had a lot in common, like you said, and we were, I think we all, uh, you know, were kind of funny guys, and we liked to share a laugh, because if you didn't, you'd never survive. The pressure was incredible, incredible pressure, incredible physical demands uh, to just last it through a day, not even mentioning traveling on the weekends, traveling on holidays being away from your family. Uh, I mean, you had to lay it out because this wasn't for the skittish. Uh, you had to make tremendous personal sacrifices. Uh, I don't know how my wife did it. I mean, she's a giant in my world because of uh, what she put up with because I wasn't there very often. We had three ki eventually had three kids. And, uh, you know, if I wasn't working for Dole, I'd be 
you know, with my family, and that's all that mattered to me. Uh, but it was really tough because I'd be out playing catch with my son, Wally. He was a you know, really great baseball player, and I'd be out playing ball with him, and my wife would open the door and go, hey, CNN's on the phone. And I'd have to run in and do that. Then I'd come out and play it again, and Dole's on the phone. I'd have to be running in. And back in those days, you got to think of it, no cell phones, no pagers, no portable anything. It was all station-to-station telephones. So when Bob Dole called, you ran, had to run to a telephone. Okay, and a lot of times uh, I'd be running in and sweaty or whatever, and uh, Dole would be on the phone and saying, I want to put out a press release or a statement. Yeah, a statement. Something happened, and we would react with a statement. Some world event, someone maybe passed away, maybe the president issued some some proclamation, something happened. You know, Howard Baker was named the chief of staff. Whatever it is, Dole would, would always be first with a comment. First. We were, we were, again, at this time I had been like, I was now a seasoned veteran having kind of worked my way up the communications chain. So now we had the thing down to a science. We were rocking our Dole would call. He would, you know, off the top of his head, you know, do a statement. Then I would, then I would kind of clean it up or do whatever. I'd call him back and read it to me, go, you know, and make changes and say, okay, let it roll, you know. And so then I would call up again, this is in the old days, telephone, call AP, boop, 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 AP, up, now I've got to call New York Times, boop, 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 New York Times, read the statement, read the statement, read the statement, read the statement, read the statement. Super intense, you know, and it was either a Saturday afternoon or the last thing you wanted to do. But that's what you signed up to do and that's what you did. We also worked, Scott and I worked every Saturday. Okay, we had, uh, again, when you sign up for the duty, this is what it's all about. So Scott and I would, would report to duty Saturday morning around 9, 10 o'clock in the morning. Dole would be in there in his office. He'd be wearing casual clothes, which you almost never saw him wearing casual clothes. So he was wearing like khakis and loafers. He was always extremely well-dressed. Maybe a sweater and a white shirt, but, you know, loose tie. And no tie, excuse me, open collar. And it was great. It was strategically brilliant by Dole's uh, uh, instincts because everybody else was at home relaxing. No, we were in taking advantage that nobody was there. So we had the whole media to ourselves. So we'd always try to think of um, a way to do interviews, put out press releases or statements. And so it was for a couple hours every Saturday, man, we, we really were highly productive and we owned the airwaves, you know, on a Saturday. And it would bleed into Sunday. Now then, Dole was also breaking every record in the book on being on Meet the Press, Face the Nation, and The Brinkley Show, Issues and Answers prior to that. He was on, it seemed like every Sunday, but maybe it was every other Sunday. Every other Sunday. So he'd work Saturday, enjoy your time at home, Bright and early Saturday, Sunday, instead of going to church, you were going to the Dole Media Church, which was Meet the Press, Face the Nation, and then you get home, and it almost made the weekends more enjoyable because you had so little of it. So when I got home after the Brinkley show on Sunday, and my wife had already been to church, and the kids were up, and I got home at like noon or one o'clock, and I felt like I had been given a gift, and so it was the most intense time with the family that you knew at least you were done working. Not for everybody. 
um, <clears throat> I want to shift here just a little bit. Um, and what kind of relations did you have with uh, the other press secretaries of other senators? When I became the uh, majority leader press secretary, you, you're, you become de facto the kind of dean of the press secretaries. And that was kind of a daunting responsibility, too, because you know, they're really sharp, smart, hard-charging people, too, and they came from different states and different you know, issue areas, if you will. And so um, I had to uh, work hard and count on people like Sheila Burke and others, Rod DeArmond, to brief me on, and, and uh, Howard Green to give the other press secretaries um, a hint of what was to come, what, you know, what they could expect on the floor, what our strategy was. So that, that was good for me, good education. And so I would hold um, maybe, I think there were weekly, if I can remember, weekly sessions with the press secretaries. And that's how I got to know Ari Fleischer, who became, you know, Bush's first White House spokesman. And he and I became pretty good friends up there. And he was, I could tell, really, uh, you know, a comer. He was eager to learn. And I felt like I was mentoring him in some way. And, and so he would check into our office. He was with Pete Domenici at the time. And so that, that was a good experience for me, and I, I enjoyed doing that. And how did your, how was your operation with Dole different from the rest of them, or were others sort of following your example or doing the same kind of thing, beefing up the media end of things and so forth? They did their own thing. You know, we, uh, in the majority leader's office, we were uh, like news around the clock. It was unbelievable. It was, you know, we did, you know, uh, interviews and uh, you know, press releases. We had the, the, the leading reporters in the world coming into our office. Also, uh, Clarkson Hine and I, when he was my deputy press secretary, he and I worked together great, and we really had, we ramped up, again, the access, the strategic kind of communications focus, kind of ideas, gimmicks, stages, you, you name it. And what we, what we did was we, we would turn Dole's Capitol Hill office almost into a studio because when you're in the majority leader's office, you're the mayor of Capitol Hill, you can get anything done that you want. You just snap a finger and people jump. And so they had um, uh, almost like moving men, you know, you could call, and they would come up. So what we do is if we had, for instance, Clarence Thomas coming up, during his confirmation hearings. Uh, we wanted to make sure we got out the message that we were supporting him and that he was you know, working with the leader and we were showing solidarity with him. So uh, Clarkson and I would design uh, the office like it was a studio. So we'd call up the moving men. They'd come in to move all the furniture out of the room and put it in the hallway. Then um, we had a drill where we uh, would then pin the curtains behind Dole's desk and the Capitol closed because if you're you know, pointing a camera into a window, it, you know, it ruins the shot. So we had a whole uh, technique where it almost like stapled the curtains shut. And then I would bring in an American flag as a backdrop. And then there's a technique where you take a hanger and put that behind the flag so the flag folds out like a triangle. Otherwise, it just hangs limp. So we wanted to make sure that the background was enhanced. Uh, then we would arrange the chairs in a certain way. Or if it was uh, 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 George Bush visited or Reagan, we'd do the same kind of staging. And then we would have, uh, I kind of snap my fingers again, and, I, and I'd say we're going to have a photo op in Dole's office 
at 10 a.m. with George Bush, let's say, or even Clarence Thomas or, or something else. So the, uh, the, the people who ran the, uh, the press offices upstairs would get the word out. And of course, it was like guaranteed media. So the entire national press corps would file down from upstairs. So that would mean all the broadcast, every network, CNN, you name it. Washington Post, New York Times, AP, UPI, Reuters, you, know, you name it. Okay, then other newspapers. And we do the same thing. We'd call the Washington Times, the Baltimore Sun, the Boston Globe, the LA Times, the Seattle Post Intelligence, or you name it. And so we'd get those all lined up, and then we'd get all the still photographers, don't forget. AP, UPI, New York Times, Washington Post all had their own photographers. What would happen is we would stage them outside our uh, door. So we had built this, like, you know, de facto TV studio with a big door that I was in charge of. And you have this kind of authoritarian power where you determine exactly when the media does, what they do, and when they do it, and how they do it. So the people who run the galleries are all great people. So you had the still photographer gallery, you had the press gallery, and the, t and the broadcast gallery. So I said, okay, this is what I want. When I come out and I open that door, we're going to let the still photographers in first, nobody else. Okay, and I knew all of these guys. You know, and they were great. I, I love working with still photographers. So I'd open the door. Okay, bring them in. The other guys were in the bullpen. They couldn't come in. So the still photographers would come in. So they're not being, you know, they're not in competition with TV cameras and stuff. And they would just be snapping all over the place because we had the staging and we had all these different people in place. And I knew we'd get great pictures. And I'd, I'd give them enough time to say, okay, that's it. You know, got to go. Uh, and then these wise guys were smart because they figured out, all right, if we don't want the staging thing, they, there was this new technique, and you see it now all the time, but it was started back then. Was, as the photographers leave, and see you later, they'd turn around and get the one last shot of you know, backs of people and people in motion, and that became a kind of a legitimate news shot. And then I'd let in the TV guys, okay, with the reporters. So the reporters, would, the print reporters would kind of fan out on the flanks, and the TV broadcasting guys would be, you know, spraying the room with video. And so it went like that year after year, you know, week after week, month, year after week. We did it all the time. And it was this guaranteed wall-to-wall -wall coverage. It was incredible. So we were, again, ramping up, blowing up the access, you know, doing things that I don't think anyone had ever done before in the majority leader's office, not even close. You mentioned Clarence Thomas. Uh, talk about some of the really big issues during the period that you were uh, on the Hill, and, and particular battles? Or uh, you had the Bork nomination. You had the Clarence Thomas nomination. You had uh, major farm bill legislation that, you know, Dole was the linchpin, the absolute expert, the, the number one. The, the, he was the voice of agriculture on the Hill. Nobody knew more about agriculture programs than he did. Nobody, not even close. He could talk to the cotton guys, the rice guys, the wheat guys, the corn guys, pork bellies, cattle. He knew it all backwards and forwards. And even though Dole wasn't on the Ag Committee, they, he was the most important guy in agriculture. And I'll never forget this, too. The 1985 Farm Bill was the most comprehensive, complicated, contentious Farm Bill in the history of Washington. And Dole put it all together. It all happened because of him. And I'll never forget this. We did one of our stagings in the office. And we had uh, Jesse Helms was chairman of the Ag Committee at the time. And I think 
Ed Zerinsky from Nebraska is a Democrat. But Dole was always kind of partial to him and included him in a lot of stuff because he was a moderate Democrat farm guy. And we staged a picture where uh, you had Jesse Helms and, and uh, Zerinsky uh, looking at the farm bill, but it was the actual farm bill. I think it weighed 13 pounds, and so we wrapped it with uh, twine. And, and, and he was like, Jesse Helms was like holding it up, and Dole and Zerinsky were standing by the farm bill. And I think that picture is in the Dole Institute now, something like that, but that was a great shot. So th we did things like that. So the farm bill, you also had the, uh, you know, the Reagan agenda was on the Hill. You know, so Dole was point person for the Reagan agenda. Think about that. We had the um, Contras, funding for the Contras. We had the uh, Ali North uh, Arms for Hostages crisis. I mean, these are things off the top of my head. You had the first Gulf War, the invasion of Iraq out of Kuwait. I mean, um, I mean, the shuttle blowing up. I saw that live on TV. I was watching, I happened to be watching the shuttle. I had three TVs in my room on all the time to monitor the Senate and the networks, and I was watching the Senate, the shuttle take off, and I saw it blow up. And uh, I had to go into Senator Dole's office. I, said, you know, I interrupted, I said, I kind of choked up. I said, Senator, the, the space shuttle just blew up. So he came out to see it, and uh, I wrote as fast as I could a statement. For Dole, it actually is probably one of the best things I've ever wrote, ever written. You, you can figure <laughs> out how to say it. But, uh, and Dole went out to the Senate floor and, and, and read it, you know, and I always, that's kind of one of my highlights. But uh, Dole ended up trusting us to write him stuff, you know, and uh, he, I, I, that kind of trust. It really meant a lot to us and means a lot to me now that we could give him something almost cold. He would take cold material and read it on the floor of the Senate. And you have to remember, too, that Dole was the senator who, as the majority leader, brought television into the Senate chamber. Prior to Dole becoming the majority leader, I know this sounds incredible now, uh, there was no broadcast coverage allowed. People never saw the Senate, they never heard the Senate, they never heard the voices of the senators, and on the national news, and I'm saying this for all you people who are too young to know this, the only time you saw senators on national news were sketches drawn by artists. I'm talking about in the 1980s, like you see in courtrooms, you know, where they don't have cameras. That's how it was. And Dole was absolutely convinced that the broadcast should be in there. Now, did that help his political career? Absolutely. Was there a you know an ancillary motive? Sure. Well, fine. <laughs> right. <laughs> it makes sense. Nothing wrong with it. And by the way, the people ought to be allowed to see their elected officials. If it wasn't for Dole, there wouldn't be C-SPAN. And so I'll never forget the day we brought in the TV and we had a grand opening. You know, there were some experiments leading up to it. So they had first they had a broadcast. You could actually hear the senators, but you didn't see them. And then they had the test with the cameras. Ooh, make sure it's all this, and then. Finally, there was the day where we actually opened it up and had the full broadcast, but Dole was the one that got it done. And were you an instigator on that? I helped. I definitely helped. Yeah, and I was very proud of that uh, because it was something that needed to be done. Did you have particular uh, what I might call press battles 
with the media mm -hmm. every day. We'll talk about that for a bit. Well, you have to keep in mind, uh, you know, w what is the playing field that Dole is on, okay? He's a world-class, world-leading household name, towering politician of influence. So he has a very strong point of view. He has an agenda and his beliefs that he believes passionately about, and so did we. That's why we were there. If you didn't, didn't believe, you shouldn't be there. That meant, if you had to, it meant going to war, you know. And that's maybe an extreme way of saying it. But you had a point of view, and you wanted to make sure that you had your point of view. And you had the national media. There's no question tilted left, <laughs> without a doubt. And they were covering everything that you were doing. Okay, so there is that everyday tension of the left wing and the Republican side, you know, and we're trying to get a fair shake, you know, in the coverage. And so it was a constant battle to get your message out without being filtered or uh, ignored, frankly. So while we had the platform to communicate, how it came out in the papers, and this is regardless of any partisan position, but it's all up to editors and reporters at the end of the day. You can't control that. But you give it your all to make sure that you get your point of view out, and hopefully it's reflected in the stories. So, yeah, I, we battled every single day. And uh, we had the, uh, the confidence and the, and, and the backing of Senator Dole to make sure that we stood tall in the face of reporters who maybe had a different view or uh, wasn't, uh, that weren't treating us fairly. And, and, and we did. We, uh, you know, we, we got our message out, and, and if we had to, we would kind of go to the mat with a reporter or go to an editor. From your perspective, how, how was the New York Times, as the example, uh, slanting stuff? You know, they're, they're uh, liberal papers. This is, you know, this fundamental. There's no question about it. But uh, at the same time, and, and don't misunderstand me, uh, Dole had enormous respect for those reporters. Uh, and I'll never forget this. When I first joined him, uh, he said, uh, you know, don't ever try to fool these reporters because these are really smart people, and they know more about a lot of these things than I do. And he was right. He was absolutely right. And it's really amazing. Some of the Hill reporters had been up there a while. They knew legislation. They knew Senate rules. They knew the ins and outs of issues. I mean, unbelievable. And he was right. So you, you didn't, you could never, you know, try, you know, gimmickry and fooling and all of it. That, that, that wasn't part of the deal. But, uh, you know, when it came to, and don't forget, we, we had Reagan as president. So, there was tremendous shock in the world of Washington that, that a conservative was now president. And a lot of media couldn't come to grips with that. They were in a state of shock. You could tell it. <coughs> Excuse me. So there was that kind of anti-Reagan factor in the media that they were uh, pushing like crazy against his agenda. And when we were on the Hill, you know, supporting the president or doing our, our thing, it was a little bit of like swimming up, upstream a lot of times. So you, you felt that, that uh, certain, the liberal press was expressing their, their point of view 
not just on the editorial pages, but actually in reporting the yeah, news. Yeah, absolutely. Sure. That's just, that's kind of, you know, human nature in these papers and outlets are are what there are. It doesn't make them bad people. I liked them. I got along, I think, pretty well with them and, you know, but, but it was j jobs we did. I mean, that's what it's all about. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, they wrote what they wrote. And, uh, you know, we, we had an obligation to be the strongest advocate possible for our position. And if you didn't do otherwise, then why were you there? How, how do you... In I'm getting a cell phone message. Oh, okay. I'll take a look here. Here for a second. Okay. Um, picking up, um, say something about the relationships that you had with the uh, White House over your period of time. I guess that would be Reagan and uh, George Herbert Walker Bush. And Clinton. And Clinton, <clears throat> exactly. Well, I, I tell you what, I was there for uh, Bill Clinton's first year in office, and I can tell you it's a lot more fun having a Democrat at the White House than a Republican, because the Republican president, you're uh, carrying his agenda and his water, uh, you know, most, most of the time, and you're seen in the light of the Republican president, and you're a Republican on the Hill. Uh, now I see why the Democrats had so much fun with Reagan and Bush and whatever, uh, when you have uh, the other party in the White House, you can tee off all the time. It's like being in a golf driving range, you know, you're just hitting buckets of balls as far as you can hit them, and that's what it's like. So, um, you know, we, while you certainly respect the president, and I want to say this, that, again, Bob Dole sh uh, showed class and utter respect for that office, regardless of who was in it. Think about it. He ran against Ronald Reagan. Uh, Ronald Reagan had a, a, a different agenda than Dole's. Uh, Reagan won, you know, in a landslide, both in the primaries and then in you know, destroying Carter, and then came in as the as the the, uh, the, uh, the new powerhouse in Washington with a whole new agenda. And you know, Dole had to, you know, come to grips with that. Secondly, George Bush became president. The guy that Dole went to the mat with in Iowa, New Hampshire, in a bloody, bloody brutal primary battle, which he could write a whole book about, and yet when it came time to support Bush, he was there. When Clinton came into office, Bill Clinton, you know, Bill Clinton, and he's a Democrat, and we no longer had anybody in the White House, Dole showed, you know, complete class and respect for the Oval Office, whether it was Bill Clinton, you called him President Clinton, uh, and President Reagan, President Bush. And that's just the way Dole was, and he understood uh, the hierarchy and the respect that, that you should have in politics. Some people didn't do that. Bill Clinton never called George uh, Bush President Bush. He always called him George Bush. So he went out of his way to personally disrespect. That was a campaign tactic. Maybe it worked. Dole would never do that. and never did. And I'll give you an example of Dole's class. Uh, it was immediately after uh, Gary Hart was caught with a uh, uh, girlfriend in an adulterous uh, relationship that was explosive, to say the least. And it just turned out that literally the next couple of days after this broke, Gary Hart made his first personal public appearance in New York on, a, on the dais with Bob Dole at an event in New York City 
And of course, I can't for the life of me think what it was. I'd have to think about it. But it was in uh, a grand ballroom in one of the you know, really upscale New York hotels. And I'll never forget it. The media was in there en masse because of Gary Hart's you know, personal crisis and political crisis. And Dole was speaking first, and then he was going to introduce Gary Hart. Now, this had all been put in place well before all of this broke. The easiest thing in the world would have been to Dole to, you know, cancel, say something, you know, to get cheap headlines, uh, ignore him, whatever. We had a, a, a reception prior to the event, you know, for the VIPs or whatever. Dole went out of his way to be around Gary Hart. Uh, nobody, he, he wouldn't respond to any issues that people may have been bringing up. And then when the uh, program began out in the full auditorium with all the cameras, Dole introduced Gary Hart as my friend, Gary Hart. You know, I, I just was, you know, gave you goosebumps when he did that because he went out of his way to help a guy who was in a personal crisis. I'm going to tell you another time when I had first joined Dole, and um, a freshman senator from Wisconsin, uh, oh, was this a ca- uh, Cas- uh, Caspin, Bob Cat? I'll have to think about it. <laughs> Dear Homer, you can figure out who it is, but it was a freshman senator was on the banking committee, and at the time there was a huge banking issue. And he was, uh, as a freshman senator, which was kind of a little bit un, uh, unprecedented maybe, but this was the new Senate where you had freshmen coming in and doing whatever they wanted. And they, he was kind of off on his own agenda. And he was making a lot of news and he was uh, taking on bankers and, and all of this. And I'll never forget this as Dole went up to the, the uh, press uh, room upstairs and he had a little room where the... It was lit, and then all the media would come in that set up the cameras, and it was like an interview room that's long since been gone. This was the old-fashioned one. It was like a little hovel, you know. It had the fake books and, you know, the lighting, and it was cramped, and you'd look through the glass on the outside and all this kind of watching Dole do his thing. Now it's, it was all modernized and all changed, but this is in the old days. So anyway, Dole went in there to do an interview on this contentious banking issue, which a guy in his own party was completely opposed to Dole, was challenging Dole, and had amendments and everything else, and it was this young senator against Dole. And Dole was in there to give his side, so we brought up the senator up, and he was answering the questions. And I was in the glass portion of it looking in, but I could hear what was going on. But there wasn't room enough to be in there. But I was sitting with other reporters, and as Dole was doing the interview, and they were talking about Bob Caston, I think his name, yeah, this Bob Caston. And they were bait, basically baiting, baiting him. They wanted him to say something about Caston. And they were lobbing up these softballs for Dole to, you know, tantalizingly, you know, lure him to tee off. And Dole didn't take the bait. He stayed on the high road. I was sitting with network reporters and wire reporters outside, and they were going, come on, come on. They were literally rooting for Dole to take shots at Caston because he was a Republican, and he was a guy who, you know, they wanted the raw meat. And, come on, Dole, go, go, you know, take it, take it. And Dole never did. He resisted the opportunity. So two things just popping in my mind, that that's the real Bob Dole, that he was so respectful of, of uh, other people and their position and 
personal attacks and all this stuff. He didn't do it. Uh, another example, I used to write the scripts for a show called Face Off, which was a daily uh, d you know, debate format between Bob Dole and uh, Kennedy, Ted Kennedy. And you, the scripts had to be really tight, and you had to write them so they were uh, about less than a minute each, so they re really weren't a debate. But I had to tape record them every, every week. So it was kind of a daunting assignment that I got that I had to do the scripts. And it was one of those things where I kind of slowly took over. Someone else was writing them. I didn't like them. I ended up editing them very heavily. And finally, I just said, you know what, I'll do it. So I ended up writing. I had to do five scripts a week. And a Kennedy guy had a great writer, too, a very talented guy. Kennedy was good, and he had five scripts. And then Dole would record his side of it, and then they would record Kennedy's side, and then they'd play it, you know. The reason I'm saying this is I, I, I tried to toughen up the, the uh, rhetoric and sometimes really push the envelope, and Dole always said, going too far, no personal attacks, tone it down, you know, don't say that. You know, so then I realized, yeah, okay, but that was a screen. He would not cross that line. Now, that may be different from the perception, but I can guarantee for someone who's inside every single day, Dole had a line that he wouldn't cross, and he never did. Even though some of us were eager to push him in there, uh, he didn't do that. So um, I just wanted to get that on the record. Looking back over your career with Dole, uh, mm -hmm. what are p particular victories and maybe some defeats? Yeah. Uh, I would say... Uh, Say probably, and it's it's a long list of incredible legislative successes and heroic actions that literally saving things that had no chance of, of passing many times on behalf of a president, Reagan and Bush. I think Dole's uh, leadership on the uh, vote to go to war against Iraq in the Gulf, Gulf War in, in 1990, maybe 90. 1991, 91, where <coughs> it was a whole, this wasn't the, the Bush-Iraq thing, that's completely different. This was Iraq and, and Saddam Hussein invading Kuwait and uh, making all kinds of threatening uh, noises about the Middle East and burning Israel to the ground, and it was a world, world crisis. And at the time, President George Bush provided tremendous leadership, putting coalitions together. This will not stand, you know, but... The president needed the backing of the Senate to commit troops and to take military action because it was a, needed this. Although he didn't need it as a president, commander-in-chief, he needed the support of the Senate through a resolution to give him the, uh, the national backing to commit troops. And this was serious stuff. And Dole was facing a losing hand in the Senate. It was a time when the Democrats were controlling the Senate, and Dole had to marshal the forces and get Democrat votes to support the president in this time of crisis. And, uh, you know, he, he ended up doing the impossible, uh, that he got the votes, and he expended his personal capital and went to the mat, and it was just a, it was a brilliant job, and we had major strategies and communications and all kinds of media that we were using, too. But it was his one-on-one -on -one leadership and uh, getting key Democrat votes, including Al Gore's, by the way, that were critical in giving the majority, a narrow majority, 
And without getting those Democrat votes, it wouldn't have passed. And the President of the United States would have had to go to war without the backing of the Senate, which would have been a disaster. And I think that was one of Dole's, if not his greatest moment uh, in a time of world crisis and military uh, action, commander-in-chief needing Dole to come through in the clutch. And Dole came through in the clutch like uh, uh, you can't believe, and he turned the thing around. And that became really uh, uh, one of our proudest moments. In fact, one of the things I'm proudest of is I had the idea of writing an op-ed for the Wall Street Journal. Once the war was clearly a mind-boggling success and the U.S. military, uh, the proudest moment since Vietnam, uh, you've got to go back to it because it gets clouded with you know, George Bush and Iraq invasion and all that stuff, that's completely different. So at this point in time, and the military was never more prepared, never more equipped, never proud, more proud in doing that, you know, with all through the doom and gloom predictions of the media and all the skeptics saying, and the Democrats got way on a limb about body bags and this is going to be a disaster, we shouldn't do it, and we held firm. We backed the commander-in-chief, Dole came through, and once the military performed so heroically and miraculously and stunningly, and people couldn't believe how fast the victory was, that I decided it would be cool if we wrote an op-ed going back to the Senate debate that Dole led and going back to what the senators, the Democrat senators said would happen and how wrong they were. And so we went through a whole, we did an op-ed from Dole using the very quotes from the Democrat senators and looking back saying, and hard to believe now, but if it weren't for four or five votes that swung, that the Senate would never have been been um, supportive. So uh, it was a, Dole agreed to do it. It was a dynamite uh, op-ed and it got, you know, tremendous recognition and accolades. Uh, you know, not that you know, I wrote it, but it was, it was a brilliant thing to do simply because it went, can you imagine if we hadn't done this and hear all the predictions of the doom and gloom that never came true? Yeah. So that was pretty cool. On the opposite side, what about a low point? Uh, the lowest point for me that I, you know, clearly comes to mind was when we lost the Senate majority and Dole was there for two years um, and threw his heart and soul into supporting uh, Republican candidates. We went out on a you know, just a brutal 17-day. I'll never forget this. This was also two things. Um, supporting George Bush for president around the clock, campaign appearances all over the United States, campaign stops around the United States nonstop for Senate Republican candidates, also Congress, and dog catcher. <laughs> that was the way Dole operated. And uh, he threw his heart and soul into that. And I'll never forget the night of the elections in November of 1986 that we were going to, you know, everything hung in the balance. It was 86, that's right, so it was before Bush, but that was, who also did the Bush thing? I was wrong there, but I'll never forget it. We were in our offices with Senator and Mrs. Dole watching the elections at night and one Republican candidate after another going down to defeat and we suddenly realized it was a tipping point where we lost the Senate majority. And that was just a, 
a crushing, stunning defeat, and it was the the real world of politics hitting you in the face about as hard as you can imagine. That suddenly, uh, for whatever reason, uh, we lost, and we were not going to be in the majority anymore. And again, a classic Dole, you know, window into his soul. He not only campaigned, you know, his heart out, but he we stayed up late that night doing interviews when we could have, you know, shut the door, no comment, we're not going to talk about it, let, let the Democrat No. Dole was on live TV, you know, he was gracious in defeat, uh, you know, complimented the Democrats, you know, said so would get, you know, work hand-in-hand hand with the new leader, Bob Byrd. Uh, I went home that night and got about, no, I didn't go home that night, I slept in um, a staffer's apartment in close into town because we had to be there next morning to do the Today Show. We did all the morning shows live from Dole's office about losing the, losing the Senate. That was tough to do, but he did it. He stood tall and showed real class and leadership, and we did all the interviews. We got two hours sleep. I met Dole back in the office right on the dot at like 6.30 in the morning and just plowed through the interviews. And he was gracious, and I'll never forget it, though, walking out of that uh, that night when we left the office, it must have been about 2 o'clock in the morning. And I went by, and I remember going by Senator Bob Byrd's office, who was the minority leader. Now he's going to be, and they had balloons out, and people were already celebrating. And they already had, um, they already had painters and uh, basically uh, interior designers all over the building already measuring for curtains for the Democrats to take over offices. And the story was, and it's actually true, that Dole's, you know, Dole's magnificent suite had always been the Republican leader's office, and there had been all kinds of attempts to take that away. And even Bob Byrd wanted to take that office away. And he paraded Dole around one famous day, showing him alternative office sites. Some of them happened to be in the basement that used to be coal bins that they had turned into staffer's office. And uh, we were not interested in that. And uh, so Dole stood tall on that, and they ended up, I think, again, because of his credibility with the Democrats, that they let him keep his office, although they took Sheila Burke's office away from Dole. And she had a magnificent, huge, spectacular office that was turned into a Democrat office during that time. So it was a really tough time. It's, it's, I'll tell you what, it's no fun to be in the loser's locker room. We're going to have to change tape here. Yeah. So it comes 1993, and what uh, prompted you to leave this exciting world? Hardest decision I ever made in my life. Uh, I didn't want to leave. You know, I, I, I'd still be there if I could. You know, it was the uh, greatest experience of my life. Uh, I was really lucky to be the right guy in the right place. It was a, a one in a trillion experience. I don't know why it was me, you know, and I, I think about it a lot. It's one of the reasons I'm trying to write about it now in, in some ways. But uh, it's uh, when I look back, sometimes I can't believe it was me because I was so lucky to, uh, to first of all, you know, get the job and then uh, to grow with Senator Dole and um, the uh, – support that he gave me because he could have uh, other other people may have uh, you know cut and run 
he stood tall, uh, I, so I didn't want to go. But I had three kids. Someday they were going to go to college. At least I hoped they were going to go. Uh, and my wife had really taken a you know a pounding. And frankly, and I'll be very honest, uh, we were very underpaid. The whole time I was with Senator Dole, we were tremendously underpaid. Uh, and uh, you know, he, he his thing was he came from a farm state. And, uh, you know, he didn't want people making more than the governor of Kansas. Okay, I get that. But, you know, at the same time, we were living in Washington, D.C., which is one of the most expensive places to live in, in, in the world. And inflation and everything else in the housing market was beyond, you know, sticker shock. So, you know, there was a dynamic there, let's be honest. So, uh, and you can ask the other people, but um, that was cer certainly an issue. We were under, underpaid and it never caught up. So, as a result, uh, I was really uh, under the gun, you know, in my position in life and getting older, and uh, I didn't have much to show for it. You know, the greatest experience of my life, but also I, I realized, you know what, uh, I need to make some money and have some stability and long-term, you know, foundation. So I was lucky enough to be uh, spotted by McDonald's actually in 1984. They offered me a job. I came out here and interviewed with them, and uh, I turned them down. And uh, that was a hard decision to make, but I'm glad I did because then that led to the entire majority leaders thing. And uh, when they offered me a job again in 1993, I had to think about it really, really hard. Um, it was kind of what I was looking for, but it entailed not only leaving Capitol Hill but moving to Chicago. It was the hardest decision I ever made in my life. I, I agonized over it. I stayed up all night. I looked at the ceiling fan. I can't tell you how many nights to do, to rip away from the thing I love more than anything else. To be in that position of not power, but to be in the middle of the world. Everything went through Dole's office. Everything. There wasn't an event on the face of the earth that didn't go through that office. I don't care if it was in Indonesia, Japan, China, Europe, U.S., whatever it was, Dole was involved. And that was a cool thing. And, and, and I had finally worked myself into the last several years of being comfortable and, you know, I had grown and matured and I really felt like I was, you know, having the impact and everything. It was, it was you know, I wish I could do it right now. Sometimes I, I dream about it at night that I'm back there, actually, to tell you the truth. And I remember I even told my wife one morning I woke up and I said, uh, I, for some reason I was back in the in the majority leader's office and Dole was there. Everything kind of looked different because it was like one of those wacky dream things. But the thrill and the the uh, the, uh, the happiness that I felt was um, almost indescribable, you know. And uh, but it was a dream, as all things tend to be. But uh, so that's the way I felt about it, and uh, I accepted the uh, the uh, McDonald's job because it was everything I was looking for. And I, and I always loved McDonald's. In fact, there's an interesting story. My Deputy Press Secretary Clarkson Hine and I were huge fast food fans. And we ate at McDonald's uh, and Taco Bell uh, almost every day uh, to just get away from the pressure cooker. So he and I would kind of sneak out and would walk up Pennsylvania Avenue on the hill where there's a, McDo where's a McDonald's way several blocks away, but we walked there faithfully every other day and we'd eat at the McDonald's or get in my junky car and drive down to another McDonald's at the foot of the hill. There was also a Wendy's there. and Actually, I became known as a guy in Capitol Hill who surprisingly ate at McDonald's all the time. In fact, it was written about. 
I have a picture that a friend of mine took from the New York Times. I have it on my wall. It's a black and white photo of my entire family eating McDonald's on Capitol Hill out on the front lawn there. So that became a tradition. So I did, um, I, accept, I told the McDonald's guys I accepted the job and I was going to do it. And then, uh, you know, I regretted it the minute I told them. And I, and I, I agonized night after night after night. And they went, we had a little neighborhood part, going away party for us. And I cracked. I, I thought, you know what, I'm going to pull the plug on this thing. I can't do it, you know, but it was one of those things where I knew it was the right thing to do, and I just, you know, bit the bullet and made myself do it, and it was agonizing to me. And, you know, I'm not afraid to tell you that, you know, I, I broke down the day I walked out that door, one of the few times, but I cracked because I knew that I'd left that world behind forever, and uh, there's no going back. So having said that, 13 years the greatest ride anybody could have had, especially someone in com communications media, and to, to see the world with, with Dole and to, to be associated with, with a legend like Bob Dole is something you know, that I'll, I'll you know, treasure you know, forever. And so uh, I did leave, and it was the best decision I ever made because I've grown here at McDonald's in ways I never could have imagined. It's an incredible company. We do business in 119 countries. I've been lucky enough to travel and, and to be part of the McDonald's miracle, if you will, and I've grown here in communications and media relations. I almost wish now that I had all the, the know-how and knowledge that I've learned from all the great people at McDonald's and take that back to Dole in the 1980s and 90s. But uh, So, you know, again, I think this has met my criteria, and I'm glad I'm here. Uh, and I look back with tremendous joy at my uh, Dole years. How did the senator take your departure? Um, that's, a, that's a real personal thing. It's kind of interesting. He, uh, I think he and I had a very, very close relationship because we worked together every single day and traveled the world together. Not that we're, you know. With, with Bob Dole, he never said things about those kinds of things, relationships, and, but you knew you know, un, unsaid. Now, if you did something wrong, you goofed up, and he, he kind of gave you a shot, okay? That's what his, he's the boss, right? So if you do something dumb, and I did a few dumb things, you know, he'd, he'd give you a shot, and he was kind of a guy who didn't need to say much. He'd say maybe three words, give you a look, or maybe two sentences, and that was like for anybody else, you know, 15 minutes, and you got the message, you know, real fast. Uh, and but he would show that he was over it. He'd come in later in the day or even the next day and make some kind of comment that was a complete non sequitur or didn't mean anything. And he'd come in and say, yeah, the sun's out. And he'd go back into his office. Well, that was his way of not apologizing, no, because he did goof up. But he was saying, you know, okay, you know, we had our peace and that's kind of done with. And this was kind of the same thing when I left um, I told him that I was leaving. It was on a Saturday when I one of those kind of famous Saturday morning things. I told him I needed to talk to him. And I told him I was talking to McDonald's. And I, I told him that, um, and I told him how hard it was for me to even tell him this, but I decided to, you know, take the, take the job. And even though I didn't want to, <laughs> didn't want to take it. But he, uh, he kind of just did one of his dull things where he kind of like nodded his head and you could tell the wheels were turning, you know. And, because, yeah, maybe we, can, maybe we can match it, you know, which kind of surprised me, and that kind of told me that 
you know, his own way, he, he really valued what I was doing, and so it meant a lot to me. And we did talk, but I think the die had been cast at that point. I really, although I did want to stay, really bad. And if they had offered me that extra nickel, I would have stayed, <laughs> just like in TV. But uh, I made myself jump. I, I just had to jump off a cliff, and I did. And I made myself jump. <clears throat> and we had a going away party, which um, I'll never forget because. Uh, you know, obviously Dole was there, and I prepared remarks. You know, and uh, there were the staff people were there. A lot of my friends in the media came in. You know, and even though people we had <laughs> battled with and everything, you know, and we were friends at the end of the day, and I had tremendous respect. My still photographer buddies all crowded in. We had Democrat staffers coming in and all that stuff. And um, uh, it was one of the times where I, I, I really, I kind of, my remarks, I hit it right. I still have a copy of them, I kept them, but I had some comedy up front to break the ice. And then uh, <clears throat> I told Dole, you know, that, you know, how, how lucky I was and I could never, you know, thank him enough. And, and, and you know, the remarks that he made and he, uh, he kind of cracked and, uh, you know, his eyes welled up. And uh, I think that's all I have to say. You know, that meant more to me than anything and nothing, you know, meant to be said and, you know, always treasure that and value that and to have just a, the respect of someone like Dole who's all about integrity and loyalty and, uh, you know, blow all the politics out of it, that's, that was good enough for me. Um, so he, he said, too, he had remarks on the floor when I was leaving and George Mitchell was gracious and he said some nice things about me and, again, I'm not in it for, to be thanked and all of that stuff, but Dole said no one had more integrity than I did, and it's probably the best compliment I've ever had in my life. So how do you think Dole should be remembered? <clears throat> you know, my, my hunch is that the conventional wisdom about Dole will be how he will be remembered, which is you know, a legislative giant, you know, one of the great senators, tremendous leader, um, you know, a guy who ran for president, didn't make it, but will always be remembered for his uh, legislative genius. Uh, that's all true. But I think Dole is underrated. I don't think he gets near the, uh, the credit for his... Um, like I said, first of all, international genius, if you will, and foreign policy expertise. He, he will never be given the credit for the 24-7 passion that he brought to the job, the nonstop working on everything that you, you can't even imagine, and the impact that, that he had literally on everything in America. It sounds like a crazy statement. But when you talk about taxes, welfare, farm, agriculture, um, uh, international trade, um, jumping into issues like Kosovo and Armenia and Cambodia and Indonesia and supporting freedom movements all over the world, his role in uh, standing tall during the Cold War. Uh, the impact he made 
dealing with the new Soviet Union and Gorbachev and his leadership on so many issues will it's too much to comprehend or to boil down even in a uh, uh, you know a, what you know what will Dole be remembered as and uh, I'll tell you what, or I, I can predict what they'll say about him but it'll really miss the man because he was integrity beyond belief uh, incredible drive and dedication to his job the work uh, and the stamina and then the other thing is his respect for the little guy you know I saw him every day of my life more than my father more than my wife for 13 years okay the way he treated the little people the the waiters the uh, the, the, the people in motels uh, the outreach to the people who come up to him in airports, you know, signing autographs, saying something nice about their state, you know, connecting with the little people, the tips that he would leave, the tips that he would give to people out of his pocket, that tells you the measure of the man more than the legislative victories. It was genuine, and he never forgot where he came from. Hard scrabble, depression, moving into the basement of his own house. <clears throat> cutting the grass with the scissors, <clears throat> wounded war hero. Uh, I tend to look at him like that. You know, if I was going to write something about him, I don't really care about the legislative part. I don't mean I don't care, but everyone's going to be talking about that. It's, you know, what he did with his disability that just blows my mind because I was with him every day and saw how he was challenged by that every single day and what he did to overcome it. And, uh, do more of it than anybody could have imagined. So that's kind of the, what I see. You know, he, he would always carry uh, two things in his shirt pocket. Has anyone told you this? Every single day, okay, and it relates to two things in his life. One was his, his disability because of his arm and shoulder and everything, his hand, and he didn't have much good feeling in his so-called good hand. He had very limited feeling in his right hand and his so-called good hand with which he did everything. He had very limited feeling. So he used to say he'd put his hand in his pocket and couldn't tell the difference between a dime and a nickel. Okay, so that gives you a little feeling of what it's all about. He would carry um, a wad of cash in his pocket, so $80, $100, because first of all, he didn't have to fish in his pocket and use change and to tip people and to have cash available mainly for just tipping people. He would keep it in there. And he would also keep there the uh, prayer card from his mother's funeral. And he kept it next to his heart every single day and it was in his pocket every single day. So I think that tells, tells you more about uh, you know, what he was all about. I think we'll stop here. Thanks, Walt. Sure. <clears throat>